You're listening to the Team Guru Podcast, bringing to life the theory and principles of leadership. Hello and welcome to another episode of the Team Guru Podcast. My name's David Frizzell and this episode is right in the sweet spot of what this podcast is all about. My guest is author, speaker, leadership coach and advisor, Jared Penn. He's recently released a book called Extraordinary, The Art and Science of Remarkable Leadership. Jarrett thinks there are two critical attributes that extraordinary leaders possess, and he's identified eight essential habits for building high-performing teams. And, you guessed it, he's going to talk us through it right now. I hope you enjoy my conversation with Jared Penn. Jared Penner, welcome to the Team Guru Podcast. Thank you very much, David. It's a pleasure to be here. Well, great to have you, Jared. Now, you are the esteemed author of a brand new book called Extraordinary, The Art and Science of Remarkable Leadership. Sounds, sounds good. In fact, it makes you perfect for this little podcast we've got going here. Tell me about your mission, the book, how, how it all came about. Mm, I've been working on leadership, either practicing it researching it, teaching it, coaching it, advising it for close to 35 years. I would say that in the last five to 10 years, I think the stakes have gotten higher. So the need that we're actually experiencing in our communities, our organisations, our countries, our, our families, uh, the need for better leadership, it just, the bar keeps getting lifted because of the, some of the problems and the challenges that we're facing and the opportunities that we need to respond to. So the typical ordinary, ho-hum, garden variety, average kind of leadership that we have to tolerate most days of the week just doesn't cut it. We need something that's better. So I'm on a mission to help lift that bar, to encourage more leaders from all walks of life to just do it better for, for, their, for their own sake and for the sake of the people that their leadership is intended to support and help. Wow, that is a good answer to my question. You've, you've given that before. It's, it's very convincing. And as someone who plays in the same kind of pool as you, I totally agree that the stakes are higher and more is being asked of leaders. But I'm really interested in your opinion on this. Do you think that we are rising to the occasion? And you know, you can think as broadly as you like. You can think just in the workplace, or you can think about public leadership if you like. But the question is, are we rising to the challenge that is so clearly upon us? It's a great question. Um, and I mean, there are so many examples of leadership that we can look at. And if we kind of probably point to the more public ones, which you and I and everyone else has the same kind of access to, I'd say it's mixed. There are some people who are clearly stepping into leadership. So if the act of leadership is about mobilizing people, if it's about influencing people, if it's about energizing people to a cause or a goal or an outcome or a vision, there's some pretty compelling examples. Whether you like these people or not, there are plenty of people who are talking up on important issues and they are mobilizing people around them. Then we've got some other leaders and some of them are quite in public life who just seem to be doling up the same old same old that we've have been we've been willing to accept for a long time now. And you hear the conversations happen happen around the, at the coffee shops, they happen between people at the barbecues and everyone's complaining about the same stuff but we keep accepting that same leadership. So I, I think it's a little bit mixed. I think we've got, still got a bit of a tolerance for leadership that's less than what we need, but we're seeing increasingly more examples of the kind of leadership that it's going to take for us to start shifting the dial in some of the important things. 
I think there's a, a really fabulous conversation just to have on that. We won't go there because there's a lot of really important stuff we want to get to from your book. But I think often about the leadership that is very public, and we have just been through in the Western world, in, in our kind of sphere, the Trump, Johnson, Morrison years. And I know people like to make comparisons between those three leaders. They certainly shone in their, their countries at, at a similar time and, and had some similar traits. There are some very obvious differences between those three men as well. But when there is that sort of public leadership of that style, I'm really interested into what kind of impact that has on leadership as we get around in our normal life, leadership at work leadership in families, leadership in communities, and whether that kind of public style rubs off on people and they start to copy it, whether conscious or not. And I will ask you just one question on that. Do those three or that kind of archetype of leadership that those three represent, are they part of that old guard of leadership that people just don't tolerate anymore? And, and has their, their various outings in, in different way of office, is that just reflective of the fact that people aren't putting up with what they used to put up with in the past. It's important. If I'm, going to, I'm going to put aside the politics of it. So I'm going to put aside what they represent in terms of their policies or their values. So I'm not, I'm not interested in that. If you look at the behaviour of the three leaders that you talked about, Johnson, Trump, Morrison, and Bolsonaro in Brazil was another example, it was leadership that was largely characterised by this term strength, about strong leaders, tough leaders who would drive outcomes. In fact, Morrison addressed this issue head on just before the last election because he'd gotten a lot of feedback that he was he was a bulldozer. So this is the kind of you know leadership which is it's relentless and it pursues its own view and it forces its view therefore without sometimes listening. So what it appears is absent is an ability to hear other points of view, to actually accommodate different perspectives that may not be the ones that that particular person holds. A version of leadership which acknowledges the importance of the term we use is warmth. So strength and warmth, and that's what the book's all about. What we see in some leaders is a much clearer ability to access and demonstrate warmth, not just strength. So the sorts of leaders, particularly during COVID, which were being held up as great examples, included Angela Merkel, included Jacinda Ardern. They included a number of leaders in Nordic and Scandinavian countries. These are leaders who were able to bring these two characteristics together, care for people, empathy, connection, build trust, communication, listen and consult at the same time as being resolute, driven, outcome-oriented. And it's when leaders can put those two things together, we get something which is quite extraordinary. I just think that Bolsonaro and Trump and Morrison and others, maybe they grew up in an era where being male equated with being tough and therefore leadership male toughness kind of all bundles together in this kind of limited version of leadership. And I'm guessing many people who are listening to us right now can think of times through their career where, you know, might not be as, as extreme as a Trump-like character, but that kind of strong man in a position authority who really leans on the strength and doesn't even acknowledge the, the warmth that's required as a leader. That's all terrific. And I appreciate the way you dealt with the politics of that, because this indeed is not a politics podcast, but it's so intriguing to talk about. I sometimes go there uh, not wanting to get political, but wanting to really focus on the example that we're being set very publicly by these leaders. I, I think it's intriguing. But let's get to your stuff. And you're going to do a huge favor to me and the listeners today, because you, like I said at the beginning, your book is so in the sweet spot of this podcast. 
And there are two sets of thoughts that you have through your book that I'm particularly interested to chat about. And they are, you've touched on them already, the two critical attributes that extraordinary leaders possess. And then, of course, the eight essential habits for building high-performing teams and superior results. So I think if we get through those things, that will leave our listeners with some real gold that they can take away with them. Talk to me about the critical attributes of extraordinary leaders. Um, You've already mentioned them. How did you land on those words? Because I'm guessing the words are important as much as the concepts they represent. Of all the experiences you've had through your career, the things you've seen, how did you land on those two? Strength and warmth. It's a, it's a great question because in psychology, which has been concerned with these two characteristics now since at least the 1950s, as far as I can trace back, it's called them different things. So the contemporary language, which tend, is tending to get used in modern psychology, is strength and warmth. So I can't lay claim to, to coining those. I, I think they're probably the most accessible version. So if I share with you some of the other words, because it often helps people understand what they are. So some of the other words for strength includes dominance. So that is a, a person's ability to exercise dominance within a social hierarchy so that they can then influence other people. Another word that sometimes gets used is power. Not power in the, the uh, a corrupt sense. A lot of people have a negative reaction to the term power. Power, by pure definition, is really just the measure of the ability of something to do work. So the more power we can access, the more work we can get done in terms of being able to mobilize things around us. So you've got warmth, sorry, you've got your strength, you've got dominance, you've got power. And the other word I really love is agency. So agency is when we're an agent for something, when we're being agentic, that we stand for something, we believe in something, we're attempting to make something happen. And in fact, the, the, probably the, the easiest way to access this notion of strength is it's, it's a characteristic, a drive towards, and an ability to make things happen. And often we use strength, dominance, agency, and power to do that. Warmth, some of the words that get used for warmth include communion, and for those who have a potentially who have a religious background will understand the notion of communion, which is to be really, com- really completely enmeshed with, integrated with something else. So when we're in communion with other people, we are with other people fully. A version of communion is where an individual is making sense of the world with and through other people, and then working out how to respond to the world with and through other people, which is quite a contrast to the the stereotype of the archetype of leadership in Western society, which is where the leader is the hero who acts heroically on their own to save the day. The other words that are sometimes used for warmth in, in addition to communion, some, the word trust sometimes gets used a bit, trust and, and love. And I love that word, love, not in the romantic sense, but in the full sense of it, to actually have affect for other people, to care for other people, or even beyond other people, the world. So the, the term love, I think, is, for me, is a better word to use, but it, it, in particularly corporate settings, um, a lot of people misinterpret what is meant by the word love when we first start using it, and at least until they start to get a better handle on what this characteristic really is. Yeah, I, I love the, ro- the, the road of synonyms you laid out before us then, because that's really powerful, and for, for all of us, words matter. And for us to be able to come up with a whole bunch of synonyms that, that help us understand what you're saying there. For me, when I hear this and have read about it in your book, I see strength and warmth along the same lines of, say, competency and emotional intelligence. I think there's, there's a parallel there. 
and you could play that game all you like. How do you like that? The competence and emotional intelligence. Does that sit right in your in your in your theme? Definitely. In fact, you've with competence, you've found you've uh, articulated a word that I didn't share that I would put into that constellation of strength related words. Uh, comp. We use our competence and we need our competence to exert our influence on the world around us and to to be trusted by others. So a question that people always have of leaders is, can we, can we trust your competence? Do you seem to know what you're doing? And warmth, the question that people have is, can we trust your intentions? Can we trust that your intentions are good towards us and they're not just self-serving? So in essence, when leaders show up with those two characteristics, they satisfy these, these two hardwired assessments that our brains evolve to make of other people when we meet them for the first time. Mm. Can I trust your intentions and can I trust your competence? And, and I think, not to harp on it, but I, I will at least two more times, the, the whole Trump, Johnson, Morrison threesome, <laughs> that, you know, what, what we get from them, even if you're a fan of their politics and their policy, it, it'd be hard to deny what you're getting is a really is a lot of one of them. You're getting a lot of the strength side and very little of the warmth side. Is, is that a fair assessment? And is that what it looks like? I mean, that's the public version of it, but is that what it looks like in a workplace as well? When someone has a lot of the strength side and very little of the warmth side, you get that type of strong man slash woman leader? Yeah, I think you do. And I've, I've observed leaders in a variety of settings. And it is true that the, the public persona, and, and particularly when the media lens is put on it, it amplifies certain characteristics. It makes, it makes certain things look bigger. And because politicians are trained to, they get media training, and what they're told to do is that you pursue the line of advocacy that you want to take. So if a journalist asks you a question you're not, that's not on target for the message that you're trying to deliver, you you kind of ignore the question and then you just articulate what you think is important. And what that creates is an amplification of strength and it, and it creates the appearance that the politician is in fact not listening. It's not accommodating or acknowledging something that other people feel is important to talk about. So I think it amplifies it in the, in, in the public sense, but I, you're right, in all of the different settings, when you have this orientation towards strength, you will get that same kind of strong person leadership showing up where as care for outcomes. Uh, however, it can sometimes come across as self-serving because it's about me getting what I want to make what I believe needs to happen, not what we want or what we need or what we believe needs to happen. And the opposite, I guess, is interesting as well. The, the, the type of leader who has a lot of the warmth and very little of the strength. What do you see in that kind of archetype of leader? A lot of connecting a lot of behaviours which are saying, I see you, I hear you, you exist, you are important, what you think and what you feel matters. However, the absence of strength can mean that that behaviour is very high on connecting but not necessarily high on making things happen. I think my favourite language around this, and I'll I'll have to borrow from Dr. Martin Luther King Jr., who said, the great civil rights leader, um, who exercised leadership without a position of authority. So he had to mobilise people. He bought you know, the middle class of America's attention to what was really going on. And his words, he, he uses the word power and love um, instead of strength and warmth, but his words were, power without love is reckless and abusive. But remember that love without power is sentimental and anemic. And I think the, he draws our attention to the fact that the, these two things need to coexist together. 
if we're going to have something that's better than average, ordinary, ho-hum, kind of limited leadership, it, whenever there's one without the other, it in some way is, is insufficient for what we need. And of course, we humans being complex as we are, we're, we're not going to be one or the other all of the time. You know, there's, there's going to be very few leaders that we can put in a box and say, oh, that's, that's a person who's really high on the strength and low on the warmth, because there'll be times where they're nice and balanced. There'll be situations in which they really thrive or environments in which they really thrive and they can deliver on both. There might even be times where that same individual is low on the strength and power and, and maybe you know, greater on the, on the warmth. And that could be to do with what the team's going through or the organization or what they're going through in their own personal life can have those kind of impacts. So we're, we're not simple and as, as beautiful and elegant as, as those two critical attributes are when you talk about them and when, when you write about them, we humans make them complex. We do. And, and it is important to acknowledge that there are times where a higher strength, lower warmth stance might be more helpful to what we're trying to achieve with our leadership. And at other times where we need a higher warmth, lower strength stance. And, but a lot of people lack the range. They lack the ability to flex up and down with their strength and up and down with their warmth as a conscious, deliberate, intentional act. What they are instead caught by is a whole bunch of programming a whole bunch of scripts that life has given them as they've grown up, or even their own biology and what's happening in their brains often limits them. So, for example, we know that there are two neural networks, one of which is about task orientation, where we sort of focus on making things happen, analysis and focus intensely. And what we're doing when we're doing that is we're not paying attention to much else. There's a different network which is responsible for um, engaging socially and listening to others, being able to incorporate new information that's being provided by external parties. Those two networks cannot operate at the same time. So fMRI scanning has shown this to be conclusive. They can't operate at the same time. What you get is one's in operation and then that gets switched off for the other one to be in operation. The very best leaders understand that both of those networks matter, both of those capacities matter, and that where they are stronger in one than the other, they learn to strengthen the other network through practice. And then they learn to micro-switch much faster. So they're constantly switching between those two orientations. So they're aware of the choice they're making. They have the agility to move between the two. And so they're not held by a whole bunch of non-conscious programming or tendencies or orientations. Whether it's a half-day energizer session or a comprehensive team and leadership program, Team Guru's unique approach could be just what the doctor ordered for your organization. Jared, I, I love that. And even if we left the podcast at that, just that really fantastic discussion between strength and warmth and the similes and the, the different ways that we might perceive those and the, the fact that some individuals tend towards one over another and the fact that really great leadership is about flexing between the two um, given the situation. If we, t if we shut it down now, that would be a valuable podcast to listen to because even if we know that from past experiences, it's one of the most important things that we can be reminded of regularly as, as lovers of leadership development. But we're not going to leave it there. We're, we're going to, in the second half now, talk about these eight essential habits for building high-performing teams and superior results that you outline in your book. Look, they really are terrific. And, and I know there's been a million books that talk about you know the five keys and four things and eight here and seven there. And, and again, they, they, for some listeners, they, these might become their favorite. They might become their commandments of leadership. But for many listening, they'll just be a good reminder of the important things that we know, 
that we need to refresh every now and then. So if you'd be so kind, sir, as to take us through each of those eight, we'll have a little chat about them as we go, and I'll ask you a whole bunch of ignorant questions. I'm sure they're not ignorant. Not. I love the idea of being asked questions. It reminds me of that at saying that um, sometimes leadership, you're, you're better off rather than having all the answers is to just have a few really helpful questions. So please feel free. The, just to put a, some context around it, the, the eight that I identified are based upon observing leaders for decades now. So there's a period of my life where I spent a lot of time just assessing and observing and evaluating and giving feedback to leaders on their competencies, how effective they were. And that numbered could be in the tens of thousands. It was certainly in the thousands. So that played a pretty big part in noticing these behaviours that seemed to produce better outcomes for leaders. Then when I was, over the last decade, when I've particularly been investigating this notion of strength and warmth, I got curious about, for these different skills, these different behaviours, what's the role of strength and warmth? And what I found is that each of these habits manifested, was a way in which that leader could manifest strength and warmth simultaneously. So they each become, each time someone thinks about applying one of these habits or skills, there's a, there's a direct opportunity to show up as both warm and strong through the exercise of this habit. So I'll talk you through them. So the first one is being intentional. And what we know is that we, part of our brain, produce conscious, deliberate, choiceful intentions that we want to pursue in, in a conversation or an interaction or a meeting. But there's another part of our brain located at the rear, which is more concerned with our survival and our safety. And that can, that can produce a different set of intentions. So I can go into a conversation, I can be intending to empower people, I can be intending to ask curious questions and listen. But what might happen is I might go into that meeting feeling stressed, I might go into that meeting and hear some things that I don't want to hear, and then part the part of my brain that really wants to just ensure that I get through that meeting quickly and have my view heard and get what I want might start shutting down my ability to listen, to ask questions and to hang out with a different perspective. And so understanding that those two intentions can be in competition with each other at any given point in time is very helpful for a leader to ponder on before going into any interaction and ask, what is the deliberate, conscious, choiceful intention, purpose that I want to pursue, and how do I ensure that that intention is both strong and warm? Strong because it'll make something happen, warm because it then engages the other people and releases their potential and their commitment, their capability. So that's the intentional. You remind me there, Jared, of, of one of the very first books I read when I got interested in leadership as a consultant was um, Conversations for Change by Sean Kent Hayashi. And I just had to Google it because I couldn't remember the name. But the, the, the premise of the whole book was exactly your first essential habit is be intentional. So to come into a conversation and actually say, hey, this conversation is for brainstorming or this conversation is about um, making a decision, or this conversation is about eliminating waste, or whatever it might be, just to make it clear for yourself and for the other people in the meeting what we're actually here for. Because you know the the kind of the strange roadblocks you can come across when a leader is sitting there wanting results and decisions right now, and someone else might be under the impression that we're having a brainstorming session. I mean, those two things are very different. And yes. they can clash really badly. Now, what you're talking about is just as a leader, I think, internally be clear of your intention. And I think that's mm. a really great place to start. But this kind of model of conversations for change is, is even about being verbal about it and say, okay, this meeting is for, this is what our conversation is for. And uh, yes. that just that, 
just that step of being really intentional about what you want to achieve is super powerful. It's incredibly powerful, particularly if you lay that purpose front and center at the beginning of the conversation. Mm. And if therefore the other person can engage with it, they can focus on it, they can make a contribution to it. And if we make one of the most important points I make to leaders is just remember that a lot of our management think has been born from the industrial age where we manage things. And we are often oriented towards trying to fix things. So we're trying to find moments where people or results are deviating from what we intended or what we would desire. And we tend to therefore focus on the negative. And we then can go into a meeting with the intention, for example, to fix someone or to address a performance gap. And, and what that creates in ourselves is often some reluctance, some reticence. We expect conversation is going to be hard. We then show up with this purpose that's going to show up either verbally or non-verbally through our behavior where we're not comfortable about the conversation, the other person's picking it up. So my point of view is always, if you want to think about a purpose which is both strong and warm, in that scenario of a performance conversation, my intention, my conscious intention would be to help this person succeed. And that might require me to give some tough feedback. It might require me to be candid. It might require me to be comfortable with conflict and, and heat. But if my intention is to help this person succeed, they'll pick up on that. It's going to show up because our intentions walk into the room before we do. That's a great line. Our intentions walk into the room before we do. All right. I'm sorry, Jared. I slowed you down there, mate. Number two is manage impressions. What do you mean by that? Our brains are wired to make very quickly assessments of other people's warmth and strength to make those judgments about what are your intentions towards me and do you have the competence to carry them out. They happen within one-tenth of a second to three-tenths of a second. And once our brain has made that assessment of the other person, then it's going to take a stance towards that person. It's either going to be, I'm going to trust and engage with you, be open, be willing to listen, or I'm going to avoid, minimise my risk with you, which might be a defensive or it might be an aggressive stance that they'll take. We're signalling this data about warmth and strength constantly to other people. So being very conscious and deliberate about showing up with body language that is both warm, for example, eye contact, smiling, not at least not scowling, open body language, and strength as well. So eye contact as well is a signal of strength because the strong look where they want to. We might have a, a upright body, straight back, and we might have an open stance. All of the things that say to the other person that I am here, I am confident, I deserve to be here, and you do too. Yeah, that's so powerful. Those kind of moments, you know, it just reminded me of something. I promise I won't slow you down every time. I went to a fabulous illusionist on the weekend. His name's Matt Hollywood, and he performs on the Gold Coast. We went there for my son's ninth birthday. And this guy is fantastic on stage, you know, does the, all, the, all the tricks, blows your mind. You're sitting right there looking at him live and he still blows your mind. It's quite impressive. But what he's even better at is getting to know the audience. As you walk in, I mean, he's the guy showing you to your seat when you come in the theater, which is amazing because he's the star of the show. And then as you leave, I mean, I think he must have said something to everybody who was leaving. As I walked out, I mean, I had no contact with this guy except watching his show. And he walked over to me at the end as I was walking out with my kids and he touched me on the shoulder and said, oh, I wish I had have got you up on stage. You would have been fabulous. And he <laughs> doesn't know I would have been fabulous. I wouldn't have been fabulous. He doesn't know me at all. He was just being a smooth operator. And even though I knew he was being a smooth operator, it still made me feel great. And I love the fact that he said that in front of my kids. And then he turned to my son and he said, you're so lucky. What a cool dad you've got. 
And again, I'd had no interaction with this guy. I'd done nothing to be a cool dad. I knew it was fake. I knew it was his charm playing the room, but it still made me feel great. And I was so pleased he said that to my son. So I guess the point I'm trying to make is, is those kind of first impression things that we know we should do, like look at someone in the aisle and in the eye and smile, shake them by the hand nicely, you know, in a really comfortable kind of way, be polite at the beginning of a conversation. They really do have an extraordinary impact on the people you meet. They sure do. There's no question about it. The science is clear on it and your own lived experience is clear on it. It was amazing because I knew what he was doing. It was like his illusions on stage. I knew it was a trick, but I still loved it. It still made me feel great. All right. Number three, release energy. This one is a quite an eye-opener for a lot of leaders. And in fact, just this week and last week, I've spent time with leaders on this topic. A lot of leaders go into a conversation, for example, and the conversation or interaction is the principal mechanism through which they're going to exercise their leadership. So it's a moment in time at which they can energize and mobilize and influence this person to take up the work that needs to be done for them to exercise their capability. And what we do is we tend to either assume that the other person's already motivated to do it, or we make the mistake of assuming that whatever motivates us is what is motivating them. And so we end up selling to ourselves the reason that this person should engage. And the other person might be in a completely different space. So my advice to leaders is, you can't lead people from where you are. You can only lead people from where they are. So you have to, if, if you don't understand what hopes, dreams, and aspirations pull them forward, or you don't understand what fears, anxieties, or worries hold them back, you really can't lead them. The only thing you're left with is your authority to demand their compliance, which we all know is it, it's insufficient. It doesn't activate us. When we're just told what to do, it doesn't float our boat. So you have to understand what motivates people, this individual, and you have to be appealing to that and help them understand how taking their action, taking a particular action that might be necessary is going to help them get closer to what they care about or help them move away from those things that worry them, concern them more, or create fear for them. And this is the, these, this is the fundamental of leadership. And if you're not paying attention to this, then you just can't lead well. That is such an important part of leadership. That is something that we've all heard before, the idea of that we, that we manage people differently according to their needs, that we realize that everyone in our team, everyone we have relationship with is motivated by different things. And we can hear it a lot, but it takes great discipline and skill and intelligence to remember to do it at the right times and, and to make it part of your leadership habit. Fantastic. Number four is curiously inquire. A lot of people will be familiar with this notion of asking questions. And the reason we often do it is to get more information. There are actually some other compelling reasons why we should be doing it. One, asking questions makes us more likable. And when we are more likable, people are much more willing to support us as leaders. The second reason that when we ask questions, we start to reveal more about What's that person? Not just what do they know, but what do they think and what do they feel? And that's that important information that allows us to connect with them where they're at and help move them or move, mobilize them towards where they need to go. And then asking questions gets them to do some heavy lifting. So mm -hmm. I can just give someone the answers, but they're not doing the work. So my job is to actually build the capability of other people, help them learn what they need to learn, help them grow capability. And I can do that through questions using well thought out questions, I can get them to think about what they're doing, get them to think about their approach, get them to think about what's causing what they did, which causes an outcome which might be less than what we wanted and how they might be able to choose something different. And I can do that all through questions. 
So they get to do the heavy lifting. And that's important for me as a leader because if I just keep giving them the answer, then they become dependent on me. And every answer then becomes dependent on me doling it out, which is going to limit what gets done around here to the amount of times a day I can give people answers. Mm -hmm. If I can instead empower people to do the heavy lifting, to take accountability, to think things through, to learn and to grow, I am exponentially growing what can happen around here and I am exponentially growing the number of people who are likely to be successful. So it won't just be me. And again, a, a super important one, really powerful. Again, it takes great discipline to do that because everyone who listens to this podcast and identifies as a manager or a leader is super busy when they go to work. So it's so tempting to give people answers because that's a quick conversation. Mm. Give them an answer, turn it into a direction. Whereas what you're saying is if you ask the right question, it takes a bit more time, but it's like a coaching moment. And if you ask the right question of the person who's come to you for your thoughts or advice, then you're getting them to think. And it's a bit like teaching your kids how to tie their own shoelace. It takes a bit of extra time, but it means that you don't have to do it every morning. They can start to do it for themselves and their independence grows and, and their own path is flourishing. I really like that piece of advice. Number five. So often we hear this one, so hard to do, so easy to say these words, Jared, but so hard to do, listen deeply. It is, it's very hard and, and I'd contrast it with listening superficially, which is listening to hear what you expect to hear. Or waiting for my turn to talk. Yeah, Stephen Covey said it very well when he said that um, most people listen to respond, they don't really listen to understand. And so we're f as we're hearing what's being said, we're filtering it against our version of the truth or what we expected to hear, and then where, where it doesn't fit with our version of the truth, we're just getting ready to tell the other person why they're wrong. Where it does fit with our version of the truth, we're just getting ready to tell them why they're right and why we agree with them. Either way, we're generally not listening, and we're not gaining anything new. The idea of deep listening is to, to ask questions and, not, and assume that you don't have the answer, to ask questions for which you are genuinely willing to listen to a version of the truth that is different than your own. And you don't have to agree with what's being said to you, but the idea is to actually hear it because until you hear it and understand how the other person is experiencing problem or the opportunity or the situation, as long as you don't understand that, you're powerless to help them problem solve their way out of it or powerless to help them work out what path they need to take to move forward. You can continue to listen superficially and give them your version of things but it's unlikely to connect with them where they're at. It's unlikely to reflect what they think is important or how, what they're experiencing. So their ability to then use what you're proposing is, is limited. This listening deeply, understanding perspective, I have to admit, David, I, I, I struggle sometimes when I teach this because I know that there's probably about 70% of adults, according to the research on adult development, there's about 70% of adults that can only really hear one version of the truth, and that's mm. their own. Mm -hmm. And when they hear a version of the truth that's different than theirs, they feel compelled to tell the other person that they're wrong. <laughs> Less than 30% of adults are capable of hanging out with a version of truth or a version of things that is different than their own and be okay with that. They have what we call greater complexity of mind. And just this morning, I spent time with 25 CEOs in a room helping them understand based upon the research how the difference that that made to the quality of leadership that was produced and not just the difference in leadership effectiveness, but what it did to the performance of the organisations that these leaders led. So leaders who are capable of understanding there is more than one version of things, who are capable of genuinely listening deeply, not only do they actually lead better, 
they actually produce better outcomes for their organizations. What you just described before was social media. The idea that we get fed the same opinion that we already agree with, and the algorithm on Facebook in particular gets criticized for this, just feeds me stuff that confirms what I already believe. And if we as human beings are, are pre-programmed to, you know, 70% of us are only willing to believe one version of events anyway, and the social media is just amping that up and magnifying and amplifying that, it's no wonder we're living in extraordinary times when it comes to polarization. I mean, any any issue that is of public importance becomes a, an issue of polarization now. It seems incredible. And you know, the deep listening thing, you were talking about it from the point of view of a leader and someone, you know, someone who, who needs the discipline to listen deeply. From the other side of the conversation, we always know. We always know when we're talking to someone who is or isn't listening deeply. And you can probably remember, because there aren't many of them, those really powerful experiences you've had in life where you really got the impression that the other person was listening deeply in a quality way to you. It's quite the experience as a speaker. To know that you've been heard, to know that you've actually been heard and that you exist is one of the most empowering, validating, energizing things that can happen in your relationship with another human being. When we feel like we haven't been heard, we've been ignored, we've been met with indifference, that's probably worse than being hated because at least when we're hated, people are acknowledging us. <laughs> yeah, well, that's interesting. All right, number five was listening deeply. Number six is to connect emotionally. And this is I wrote this chapter deliberately because what I'd noticed, and this was particularly during the early stages of the COVID pandemic, and there was a lot of conversation around empathy and compassion, about the importance of being empathetic and compassionate. And these are just two words that are meant to describe the, the extent to which we can emotionally connect with others. Now, there's no question whatsoever, and the research is absolutely conclusive on this, that there is a very strong relationship between the, the ability of a leader to emotionally connect with others and their effectiveness as a leader. What we tend to do, though, is we use different language, and I don't think the conversation is particularly clear. So understanding that there's a, there's a range of emotional connection. At a very disconnected state, we can ignore other people's emotions. We can be apathetic. We can also de demonstrate antipathy towards others where we can say, you're, you're wrong to feel that way. Your emotion is invalid. At a highly connected state, there's a thing called emotional contagion, which is where we catch the emotions of others. It's a herding behavior. It allows us to avoid risks. If I was walking towards a forest and a bunch of people are yelling, running out of the forest, yelling and screaming, you know, it's probably better for us to catch that emotion and go, Jesus, I'm out of here. I actually think this is what was going on during the great toilet paper fiasco of the early stages of the COVID pandemic, where we'd see people, you know, getting toilet paper and the part of our brain saying, you don't need it. This is COVID doesn't produce those symptoms that you need toilet paper. Yet nonetheless, we see it and we go, we better get some. Yeah. So that's highly connected. And some leaders, Get that connected, that emotionally connected to their teams. And unfortunately, it leaves them powerless. It means that they can't then exercise their independence where they need to. They get caught by the emotions that others are experiencing. There's two other points on the continuum which kind of sit more in the middle, and they're both called empathy. One is called cognitive empathy, and the other one is called affective empathy. Cognitive empathy is when I can recognize the emotions that others are experiencing, even if I'm not experiencing it myself. Now, this is a very helpful ability because what it allows me to do when another person is sharing with me how they're feeling or I can just observe them, I can acknowledge the experience they are having without necessarily feeling it myself. That means I can validate them. 
I can show them that I understand the experience that they're having and that they can appreciate that I'm they're being understood, they're being listened to, and that I'm making an attempt to f- realise what life might feel like in their shoes. Effective empathy is when I feel something in response to what the other person is feeling. So they might be angry, they might be frustrated, they might be scared, and I have a negative, I have a, I have an uncomfortable feeling arise within me, and then I want to rescue them from it. So effective empathy, where I feel something in response to what the other person is feeling, can cause me to want to rescue them. Now, that's a bit of a challenge for leaders because there are times when it's entirely appropriate to rescue people. There's times when it's not. There are times when team members need to feel discomfort if they're going to change, adapt, grow, develop. The analogy of the butterfly works so beautifully for me. If a caterpillar was to form a cocoon and then get to the stage where it was trying to break free out of its cocoon so it it could fly away, if I came along at that moment with a, a scalpel and perfectly and carefully cut, made an incision in that cocoon so that the butterfly can emerge, the butterfly would be unable to fly because it uses the process of breaking out of the cocoons to strengthen its wings. Wow, That's what enables I it to fly. Know that. That's a great story, a great analogy. And when we rescue people sometimes, we're rescuing them from the necessary opportunity, the necessary experience they need to have, the necessary struggle that they need to make to grow, to become who they need to become. David, my children go to a school where the founding principal in the 1970s said, do not do for a child that they, with a struggle, could learn to do for themselves because it's the struggle that allows them to grow. And, and I hold that to be true of leadership as well. There are times where we shouldn't rescue people. It's not our water to carry for them. We just need to support them. We need to be empathetic to the experience they're having and to let them know that we're there, but it's their work. Wow, that is a super powerful one, Jared. All right, number seven is to share perspective, the penultimate of your eight essential habits. Yeah, and a lot of people say, why is that so late in the piece? Isn't leadership all about advocating? Isn't leadership all about sharing your view? And my, view, my answer is yes, but if you listen carefully to others, if you inquire of others first, if you engage with others, they're much more likely to then be willing to listen to you. But if you start by telling them your view before having heard theirs, they're more likely to reject your view, which is just not helpful to leadership. The other point about sharing perspective is when it is your time to talk as a leader, to advocate, to influence, to persuade, to compel, you better make sure you're good at it. So there's techniques that you need to use to make sure that, that in that moment, when you have people's ear and you've built the trust, that what you say and how you say it connects to them. So thinking about the kind of language they like to use, how do they like to receive information, telling stories is a powerful mechanism for really creating connection and influencing people. And I think the hardest part of this often, Dave, is sometimes you're going to have to tell them something they don't want to hear. And if you're worried about being liked, then you're going to have a problem with leadership. And that kind of then, that we start to address that issue in this, the eighth area, which is about regulating heat. But you, you have to get comfortable with stepping into what I call risky territory. In fact, the origin of the word leader, it's thought to have come from this ancient Indo-European word, word from you know, tens of thousands of years ago, and the word was late, L-E-I-T. And the late was the person who would hold the flag or the banner at the front of the army. And that flag or the banner, as it marched, would be the symbol of the queen or the empress or the king or the emperor or the republic. And it was the most honourable position you could have to, for the late to be the leader, to hold that flag. To this day, to hold the flag in the opening ceremony of the Olympics is a symbol of that same honour. But in those days, to be the leader, 
you were also the first person that the other army wanted to take out. And what we've done is I think we've forgotten or we've sanitised leadership so much that we've forgotten that the act of leadership at times is a risky business and you need to speak up and you need to be okay with doing that. I like your line in there, if you need to be liked, then you're going to struggle with leadership. Mm. All right, now you pointed to it. The last one, number eight, is to regulate heat. Tell us about that. Yeah, so I I think I landed on this idea or distilled it when I was doing some metal work a few years ago. I was learning how to sort of bend metal, and, and I used to think you just heated up the metal a bit. And I attempted to fabricate some metal and bend it doing that, and I ended up with very sore shoulders and arms and elbows from wielding this heavy hammer and trying to bend metal. And I went back to watch some YouTube videos, and the, the metal workers on there said, you know, you need to get the metal super hot, like super hot, way hotter than you think you need to. So you go beyond a dull red to an almost translucent cherry see-through red, glowing red. And I did that, and the metal became incredibly easy to work with, incredibly pliable. And it's a, it's a terrific way of thinking about that if we want to transform things, sometimes we need heat. We need heat to transform the way we're thinking about things or the way that we're doing things or even to just be able to meld things together. For example, a, a pot of food doesn't suddenly become tasty and transform from the individual ingredients to something delicious without heat. Heat is a necessary ingredient for transformation. Now, in conversations and relationships in leadership, the heat comes from a competition of ideas and competition of perspectives. and competition of opinions. And that heat, it can be productive, but can also be destructive. So what I encourage with leaders is to allow enough heat for it to be transformative, but to avoid it moving into that destructive heat where it's actually destroying damaging relationships and destroying trust in the process. But you need heat. There is just no way to avoid the heat. A lot of leaders, however, are uncomfortable with that conflict. Mm, Looking for harmony all the time. Yeah, it's that version of leadership where everyone needs to like me or we all need to feel safe and everything needs to be okay. And what it does is it, that stance is, is unable to create the conditions where real breakthroughs happen. And so learning to be okay with conflict. In fact, Jeffrey Pfeffer, a professor from Stanford, his research is absolutely clear that one of the characteristics of leaders, at, particularly at the senior level, of those who are successful and those who are not, is their comfort with conflict. Those who are more comfortable with conflict, hanging out in it, not necessarily producing it and not necessarily promoting it as a way of getting things done, but when they are experiencing it, that they can hang out with it and they can be okay with it rather than running away from it screaming. Jared, I feel as though you have treated us to an absolute masterclass of your ideas and, and the work that you've done over the decades. I really appreciate you coming on the Team Guru podcast. We got so much out of that conversation. Thanks, Jared. It's my absolute pleasure. Thanks, David. And that was Jared Penn. What a pro. His thoughts are clear and his communication precise and interesting. I loved every second of that chat. Those two critical attributes that extraordinary leaders have strength and warmth and the eight habits number one be intentional manage impressions release energy curiously inquire listen deeply connect emotionally share perspective and number eight regulate heat as always i'll share the lessons i took from my conversation with jared on the lessons learned page for the podcast 
you'll find it along with the entire back catalogue of Team Guru podcasts on our website. That's teams with an S dot guru forward slash podcast. Connect with me on Twitter, Facebook, SoundCloud or LinkedIn and join me for the next episode on this, my mission to bring to life the theory and principles of leadership. This is David Frizzell for Team Guru. Bye for now.